The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Oh, you're very welcome to episode 104 of FNI Rap Chat. Episode 3 or 4 or 5 since lockdown. Oh, I can't remember. No, 4, I think. Yeah, everything kind of blends together. Um, hope everyone's managing through. Seeing some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully, we'll have a better uh, indication of when things might be able to get back filming. Um, as we talk about on this episode, uh, maybe documentary might be able to go back a bit sooner. Um, small crews, uh, easier to shoot outside and to keep social distancing. Um, so, maybe watch that space. Um, so, today we have Ross Whitaker. An absolutely fantastic documentary filmmaker um, has been making brilliant documentaries for the last oh, about 20 years. Um, I first would have heard of him, I think, with uh, Saviour's um, boxing film documentary. I saw it when, I think it was on RTE when I was a kid. And uh, he also was the editor of the Film Ireland print magazine uh, when that was the thing. Uh, many years ago, I met him there. Uh, he gave me a great opportunity to, to write a good few features for them uh, and we've stayed in touch since then. And he's gone on to make some of the best Irish documentaries, so like Katie, um, uh, Between Land and Sea, um, Unbreakable. Uh, so he's just a, a brilliant filmmaker and has made uh, a lot of TV projects, uh, most recently uh, Boys in Green. But the... Uh, the Irish team of the late 80s and early 90s, um, really great piece of work, uh, really <laughs> hit the spot, I think. <laughs> it was uh, uh, kind of captured the era, but also looked at the context, not just in kind of a nostalgic way. I think everyone would have learned a bit from watching it. Um, so it was great. Um, keep an eye on FNI for uh, the, uh, the meetups and uh, the... Uh, different workshops that they're trying to do online and um, talks. So we had Frank Berry on last week, and it was brilliant. Um, he's been such a support of the podcast and uh, of so many filmmakers. It was a great, really great chat. So keep your eyes peeled for those. Um, and, yeah, we're going to keep going. Um, we've got... Uh, Got a really good one next week. I, I won't say anything uh, until it's fully confirmed. But uh, and thanks for the great response that we got to the Lenny Abelson episode. Um, definitely getting great numbers on that. Great interest in it. And uh, yeah, we hope it's a good conversation for filmmakers. Um, so many interviews uh, with Lenny that maybe just look at kind of different angles. So we tried to come up with just a slightly 
more film centric or filmmaker centric angle, and uh, we, we think it's a really good chat. So yeah, let's go to Ross Whitaker. And you're very welcome back to another episode of FNI Rap Chat on the Headstuff Podcast Network. We're really delighted to have you at this very difficult time. We really appreciate you particularly listening into the show and sharing it with others. Um, as per usual, if you'd like to support FNI uh, or Rap Chat, you can head on over to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash FNI. Who have we got today, Paul? Uh, we have Ross. How are you doing, Ross? Great to have you on the line. Not too bad, guys. How's it going? Good, good. Um, how have you been managing with the lockdown and trying to keep projects going at the same time? Uh, yeah, it's very difficult, obviously, and, and there's not really any filming or not very much filming going on at the moment. It really depends on the type of project you're doing. So I suppose trying to keep existing things going in whatever way you can and then I've had a bit more time to develop some ideas I've had in the past, so I've been putting a bit of time into that as well. But yeah, less than ideal, and, and my wife works, and she's still full-time at the moment, so that kind of creates its own pressure at home in terms of um, looking after our kids and so on. So I think for a lot of people, the, the amount of errors they had in the day are, are greatly reduced. But as I was saying to you before we started, it could be a lot worse. You know, I think it's, it's a lot worse if you're working in the hospitals or anything like that, so I certainly won't complain too much. Yeah, I think that, that's the key, isn't it? Not to complain at all, really, just you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look some point in the future we'll look back at it as, uh, you know not quite three roads tinted glasses but certainly as hopefully just a, a blip on our existence for a while and and uh, any of these things that have happened in the past have come and gone so hopefully it won't take too long for it to be gone uh, but in the meantime i suppose keep the head down and hope for the best yeah and uh i guess trying to keep head space or space in your head because <laughs> usually like in normal times i guess you have more time or, you know, you kind of, um, you're going from place to place and you can kind of develop ideas that it's, you're meeting with people like that's so important for documentary makers. What's kind of generally your process? I know a lot of your work is, would kind of, would be TV work, but you also generate a lot of your own ideas as well. Yeah, I mean, it's always been a mix and it's kind of, in a, in a tiny, tiny way. I remember reading years ago about, uh, I think it was Scorsese saying, like, do one for the studio and one for yourself. And in some kind of, like, 1% version of that, I've always kind of had in mind to always be trying to do a little bit of your own thing on the side. And, and maybe you can kind of intersperse that and, and, and do one thing where, you know, the, the background to it's solid. Um, maybe it's for television or for, uh, it's for a company. And, and then in the meantime, sometimes your own projects are less well paid and take longer to do, but you get so much out of them. So... I'm always trying to do both and, and funny enough like ideas can hit me out of the blue from anywhere so I mean I could be that's one of the hardest things actually is switching off the mind sometimes you know and I've got two kids under four so at the moment I'm looking after them a lot of the time and, and then suddenly halfway through the day you're like oh god you know what would be interesting if you tried you know this or whatever and you have to remind yourself that actually you know you need to change a nappy or whatever it might be so um yeah ideas can come from anywhere in my 
sometimes they just come out of completely out of nowhere. Like and and then you just have your I suppose you develop your own internal process to try and figure out if the idea is any good or not or what kind of legs it might have because while well, I used to develop things in the past regardless of whether there would be I suppose a budget there or, or not concerned about the size of the budget I suppose nowadays I am definitely thinking of, of you know what will the funding sources for that be um, or how could we put this together or you know is this necessarily going to be a lower budget project if you really want to do it and just trying to weigh all those things up as instantaneously almost as you can and and you know, trying to figure out like if this is going to be a big archive project, you know, it's going to cost half a million quid or something like that. You know, is is are there enough people in the world to watch this to justify that or whatever it might be? So there's all these different kind of balancing factors going on in your mind when you have ideas and and then trying to figure out how to take them forward. And and I think the key thing is oftentimes is just trying to get a little bit of development money because that just makes the whole thing a lot easier. One of the things with documentary makers as well how much you kind of have to be, as a director, you have to do so many things. Do you find that, that you're, you know, you're kind of produced to a certain extent? Or how do you kind of delegate when it comes to roles? Yeah, it's, it's unavoidable, I think. You know, I mean, I think it's not unavoidable. And different people have different company structures and, and so on. But I find that a lot of the time, as if you have an idea, say, for a project and it's access-based, then really the person who has the idea, who's often the director in this case, will be the one that needs to get that access because that's the relationship that you begin to build up. So you, you kind of, you start the process and, and then there's an element of producing in that because, you know, then maybe you want to get an agreement with that person and so on and so forth. So I mean, some people have really strong kind of teams, I suppose, where a producer director team or and I have a producer, Aideen, that I work with a lot and, and she comes into projects at different stages or sometimes she can generate the ideas as well. So it, it works differently for different projects. But yeah, if you're a director that's kind of coming up with ideas fairly regularly, then you do have to end up doing a bit of the producing side of it. And oftentimes the budget doesn't allow to have two well-paid people for a very long period of time. So that can influence it as well. There are other companies out there, of course, that are made up entirely of producers. And then they have a, a whole other model, which is you know, either generate the ideas themselves from, from existing IP, whether it's books or characters or whatever it is, and then bring a director in. And that can be a really good model too. Um, or else those companies where directors just bring them the idea. Um, I've always liked to have the ability to develop stuff myself. Um, nowadays, my idea is kind of to bring it to a certain stage of development myself and, and then kind of widen it out and find the perfect company to house that particular idea because maybe different companies have different experience behind them. And also different companies have different interests. And, and you, you want whoever is pushing your idea forward to be as passionate about it as you are. You've done a lot of um, sports documentaries, especially in the last few years. Um, how important is it? How do you, do you approach in terms of like, you know, a great document or a great sports documentary is one that you don't need to be a fan of the sport. Are you... Would you be a fan of sport, or are you more interested in just in great stories? I think a bit of both. You know, I, I grew up playing sport, and I, I love sport, and I watch a certain amount of it, not as much as some people. <laughs> some people watch it all the time. I just don't know where to yeah. get the time. But um, the time. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I love sport. I mean, the great thing about sport is it's just it gives you a backdrop. Um, it gives you a narrative arc sometimes within which you can more easily tell a wider story and. I think it's one of the, one of those screenwriting gurus out there that said, you know, if the story 
you're telling or if the story you have is the story you're telling, then you're fucked. And I mean, I think the point was, I don't mean to mash up the quote like in a George W. Bush style, but the uh, the point was anyway that, you know, whatever story you're telling, there needs to be something deeper there. There needs to be a grander story that you're telling. It's not just a mini narrative. And oftentimes, I suppose, that's an approach that, that people doing drama would have. It's like, okay, this is a tiny little story, but there's something more universal about it. Um, what does this drama of three days in, in one person's life tell us about the world and tell us about humanity? And it's the same for docs, I think, very much so. And, and a great example of that recently was a, a doc that I watched there last month on, on BBC4, which has been around for a while, but it's OJ Made in America. And you just think they managed to tell the, the incredible story of um, race in America and Los Angeles through this one man's life. Now, his story in and of itself is pretty amazing, but by widening it out, and kind of telling the story of America. It's just such an incredible film, an incredible series. So I think that just shows you what's possible when you when you delve more into the context of the story you're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely love that, Doc. It, <laughs> it's uh, five by 90-minute episodes that I, I've watched it a couple of times. It's, it's that good. Um, what was... So you're kind of the most recent thing uh, that people might have seen would be um, Boys in Green. Maybe just tell Come us about how that came about. <laughs> and uh, how, you know, what you were trying to achieve with that. Yeah, I suppose I was, I was working for a company called Loose Horse Productions there. There's a, a company that's done a lot of sports documentaries and Cormac Hargan, who's the producer there, who's I suppose, a very well-regarded director in his own right, um, had started developing this idea with RTE, which was essentially about the Lansdowne riots um, which would have had its 25th anniversary in February, just gone, February 2020. Um, I was actually at that game, the Ireland-England game in 95. Yeah, everyone kid. was. <laughs> no, I literally was, know. though. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, it started as a conversation about that, and then the, the more we talked about it, and I think the more Cormac spoke to the commissioning editors in RT about it, you know, it seemed like, well, okay, if we're going to tell that story, then we kind of have to know why did that day seem to resonate in a far greater way than it should have in, a, in, in one respect. And I think there was a lot of reasons for that. But one of them was the context of, of how we had come to love our football team and how we had seen ourselves as fans that were, you know, really well regarded all over the world and had made soccer into kind of like a family sport in the country, you know. And when you start talking about that, then it really brings you more generally into the whole era of, of football from... So it was 1986 to 1995, that kind of 10-year period. Um, and we just, you know, it, it just very quickly kind of morphed from a story about that to a story about a decade, but still with the mindset that we want to tell something about identity here and we want to tell something about what it is to be Irish, uh, how we, um, I suppose, almost define ourselves in opposition sometimes to things that, Eng that England would do, you know, and, and that was very much the case with Irish soccer fans when they started traveling en masse, you know, it was kind of the height of the hooligan troubles for English fans abroad. Meanwhile, Irish fans, which they continue to do, were, were kind of representing Ireland in this kind of incredibly positive way. Um, and so that's kind of, I suppose, the prism, for want of a better word, that we started looking at the whole 10 years from it. And I think it really made it a lot more interesting for us and, and started giving us a lot more ideas about how to treat the subject material um, and, and maybe to have a little bit of a, 
a different look at something from such a, a far remove of, of a couple of decades. So, um, yeah, it was it kind of made it really enjoyable to to look at that. And I suppose again, you know, I'm not I hadn't actually seen the O.J. Simpson thing at the time, but like it, sporting stories over time are, are much more interesting when you when you do have some kind of different context um, to reveal in doing them. Was there any big surprises for you, Anderson, that you that you didn't you hadn't appreciated before delving into it? I think, you know, it's it's funny, there was certain things, like to a certain extent with these things, you go in with a mindset and you kind of have an idea of the story you're trying to tell. But then the other side of it is that you want to have things revealed to you through interviewing people. Um, and when I started doing the interviews, uh, you start realizing or you start asking questions that you don't know the answers to. You know, it's, it's always good to ask, ask questions you do know the answers to sometimes because, you know, I need to tell this, this part of the story. But other times it's great to ask questions you don't know the answer to and have the time in those interviews. And we did quite long interviews to go down a few rabbit holes and see what you find. Um, and I suppose one of the big things, it, it was just that kind of conversation around the Irish flag, the tricolor, and what it mm. meant and how its identity morphed over time. And it was something that I think I intrinsically felt, you know, growing up, you know, in the 80s and, and more in the 90s um, as, as a kind of a feeling that shifted, you know, how you felt as an Irish person living through the 80s, through the 90s, definitely changed a lot. Um, but the personification of that was a tricolor. And I'd never really thought of it like that. And that's something that a couple of our interviewees brought up. And, you know, it felt like a very kind of symbolic way to, to address that particular unfolding story of Irish identity. Yeah, it seems as if you you kind of rabbit hold uh, into a into some kind of broader political spectrum. Does that is that welcome or is that welcome to you, or does it quite li literally frighten the life out of you? <laughs> it's a, you know, I, I, I'm touching on something here that's that's or is it gold? Yeah, I think it's it's no, it's you. That's what you want to do, really. You know, and I mean, the, and the more you can do that, the better. And I think if something is purely a sports story, it can be great, but it really needs to earn its place for a wider audience. Yeah. Um, you know, if it's sports alone, because you, you don't want to make, and it's funny, you know, it, it, I, I kind of love, you know, love and cringe and hate and have so many mixed emotions around how people respond to your work, you know, and now that we have yeah, social yeah. media, I've had it for a while, obviously, but it can be frightening, you know, to know, to know that people are going to be, talking about your work uh, very openly without knowing that you're probably going to read some of it <laughs> and especially when things go out in television <laughs> i suppose particularly with football as well I, I, like football is so you know it's such a divisive topic yeah. to begin with and, and and particularly because it, in terms of you know like you were saying about roast into glasses people look back on those periods particularly with irish soccer from you know 86 to 96 you must have been, you must have, it must have been maybe a worry at times that you wouldn't, the, the you know, the, the people's memories wouldn't match up to the expectation, or, you know, your idea may not match the expectations of what people remember, I guess, you know, from that time. Yeah, and it, Paul, it really struck me when, when we were doing the build-up to I loved it, by that. Oh, good. Yeah, thank, thanks for pointing that out. Now, the, uh, when <laughs> I started doing, you know, as part of these things, um, you obviously do a bit of publicity, you do as much as you can, you want people to watch it. So um, 
as it turned out, I ended up doing a few of the interviews building up to it. And I suddenly had this like uh, total imposter feeling of like, why should I be the voice of this era? Or why should I be the person telling the story? And obviously you work with editors and you work with producers and there's, there's plenty of people putting their voices in. But suddenly I'm the one that's been put forward to do an interview in the Irish Times. And I don't want to be the sole voice of this. You know what I mean? I don't want, that's just the nature of it. But like, <laughs> And then you, you start thinking, well, why should I have been the one to tell the story as much as you might enjoy it and feel lucky to be doing it? And you then you see in those messages after when people, you're never going to keep everyone happy. You're not going to keep 50% of people happy. There's going to be someone with gripes about it. And, and that there's a discomfort in that. And you always have, there was <laughs> some of the things, and people invent stuff, you know, and it's amazing <laughs> to me is like people say like, there was one guy wrote in a newspaper, um, I... I really wished they hadn't gone down that obvious road of of claiming that Jack Charlton was responsible for the Celtic Tiger. And that's not in the documentary. Like people will see things what? that don't even exist and then write them in newspapers. You know what I mean? Like and you just think that's uh, so you can't look, obviously the response was almost overwhelmingly positive and you're delighted with that, but no matter what happens, you're not gonna keep everyone happy and there's gonna be people out there that will criticize your work. So I suppose you have to let that um, roll off, roll off the ducks back or whatever the saying is, you know. Yeah. Just stay off Twitter. It's the playground of idiots and you'll be okay. Uh, yeah, they're mostly people. It's good to get honest reaction at the same time. And I don't mind criticism as long as, as it's actually genuine. And, you know, and some people are really into a particular topic and, and then they want you to tell every boring, minute element of it, which the other 99% of people watching would hate to watch, you know, like, why didn't they show a particular goal in Spain in 1980, whatever? And you're like, well, you know, didn't have time, <laughs> you know, but we were doing these other stuff. So I hope you like them. But anyway. What about uh, what about meeting some of what you would perceive to be your heroes growing up, some of those footballers? What was that like? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was amazing. And and look, that's been, that's a great privilege of this job at times. Not just meeting heroes, meeting sometimes the most extraordinary, ordinary people and, and all sorts. It's just being able to walk into a room and, and sit down and interview Ronnie Whelan or John Aldridge or any of these guys, you know, and, and they're great storytellers and they're really, really nice people. I think they, they're they very open people, maybe in a way that footballers aren't now, you know, or maybe they are, I don't know, but it just seems like the, that world has closed itself off a lot in the meantime. Um, whereas, you know, these guys grew up in a different era and and that's, yeah, it's a great privilege of it. And, and then to, to try and help them tell the stories, I suppose, in a way that you're going to be able to use them well and and then the editing process is really where it comes to life, I suppose, where sometimes things that are said in interviews, you don't even realize how important they are until you put them alongside something else in the edit. So, um, yeah, it's very enjoyable to do a project like that in fairness. Just ask kind of what led you to documentary and what, what do you love about it, say, as opposed to drama? Yeah, um, I think that... I just always felt watching documentaries, uh, probably from I'm trying to think like the first doc that I saw that really blew me away in a way that, you know, in a cinema was When We Were Kings, which I think was around 95 or 96. And then there was a, a number of other documentaries that came along in the next few years and, and then into the early 2000s that uh, seemed to kind of bring documentary from the television screen into the, the cinema. And that, I think, kind of, made it into a very different experience. When you're watching something real on a big screen, it's overwhelming in a way that it isn't on television, even if you know so much of documentary is for television. And I just felt that it really moved me in a way that drama couldn't, that when you were watching an incredible story, 
that you knew that the people were real, that they weren't acting, and that was what was at stake in their lives and, and all those kinds of things. And that, that just really drew me into documentary. And then once I started, I just kept going, I suppose, you know. Um, I wouldn't say I'd never make a drama, but um, certainly I think I've always felt like that's the difference, you know, that with documentary, the people are real and what they're going through is real. And to me, that's just much more affecting to me personally. I know I'm sure different people feel differently, but that's what that's what sucked me into it. And did you go to film school or did you just start making films? Uh, yeah, I went to, uh, originally I went to Trinity and I did BSS, believe it or not, and then I kind of spent a few years not really knowing what to do. Um, and eventually then I went to, a few years after I did a degree, I went and did the master's course in UCD in film studies, which was one year. And um, yeah, it was a really helpful year of just kind of thinking about film and watching film and, and talking about it with people. And, you know, I don't know if I came out the other end of it with like any particular specific skill that I was going to use, but it definitely helped me to fall in love with cinema more and, and understand the language of it, you know, visually and, and so on. Um, and I suppose cemented in me the idea that I'd like to try and pursue this in some shape or form. And uh, yeah, from there, I mean, that, so it wasn't so, in the course I did wasn't so much practical as more theoretical. So it was after that, I just I actually uh, got a loan and bought a camera and just started messing with it. And right, okay. And um, so, what was your first kind of feature docker, or what was the thing that you were really proud of? The first thing, kind of one of the first things that you made. Yeah, well, around that time then, that would have been 2004, uh, when I kind of had camera in 2003, 2004, and I met a guy called Liam Nolan, who had just done a doc that had played in Galway, and I was doing a little bit of writing for Film, Art, and Magazine, and I was sort of pitching all these different stories, and Liam, was I think he won the best short doc, and he was a student, and I thought, wow, this is amazing that this kid, who was a few years younger than me, had, had done kind of what I wanted to do. <laughs> while being younger than me, so I sort of pitched that as a little story, and they said, yeah, go for it. So we interviewed Liam, and we got talking, and we really hit it off, and I kind of had this idea that, like, you know, with two people, you can do a lot. It's very hard to make a documentary on your own, but with two people, if you've got one person to hold a camera and one person to hold a mic, you have a crew, and, you know, if you pick the right topic and it has the right stakes, and you can kind of do it in an observational way without archive, then that reduces the cost. Maybe we could make a film or two, so... um Kind of, I think, persuade. I don't know if Liam 100% agreed in the beginning, but <laughs> it kind of persuaded him anyway, and, and I know he was very much on board. And we, we started filming a couple of things. Uh, one thing we did was we filmed, kind of at the same time, we started filming two things. One was a project where we came across a group of American Christians that were kind of spreading the word on the streets of Dublin at night. And they were going to be, oh my. They were going to be in Dublin for two months. And, you know, it just felt like this was a story that really had gave you the ability to within a confined period of time, which you know it's good because you don't want to be ideally doing things for years and years and years, even if you often end up doing that. Um, and they had a particular, they had a specific goal, and there would be kind of like fish out of water elements and you know c cultural clash elements and all sorts of stuff like that. So we we they agreed to let us follow them, and we followed them. Ended up for about six weeks, and we made a little twenty-minute documentary which disappeared without trace pretty much um, played in Galway and a couple of other places and it won uh, this award thing. But like 
but the funny thing about it was at the same time we were filming another documentary in a boxing club and uh, the commissioning editor or the, the exec producer in the Irish Film Board at the time, Alan Marr, was at an event, it was, it was this thing called Sunday Getter where, where they would show short films on Sunday nights in the Sugar Club in Dublin and they would have a, a kind of audience award and we ended up winning the audience award for the year even though the film had basically hardly shown anywhere other than that like it just seemed to play really well to audiences and um but alan marr who was in the film board at the time now screen ireland was one of the judges and he really loved the film and he was kind of saying to us have you got anything else because the film board had just kind of changed hands and they suddenly wanted to do feature docs and we'd always been told oh don't bother applying for the film board unless you're a famous film director um, and we didn't even realize that this had changed and here was this guy kind of asking us you know do you, do you have anything or you know to be honest with you, I'm not sure exactly how it started the conversation but we'd been filming in in this boxing club we'd, we'd actually put it into film base as a short doc idea and had got rejected and by this time we had filmed about 50 hours of footage and we made a promo for film boards and promo was really nice and they ended up saying look we'd be happy to give you completion funding um, if you can put a budget together that's affordable so we did that they gave us completion funding and we ended up making a feature documentary called Saviors um, and it played in the Galway Film Flat and a few other places and yeah it was just a great experience I suppose to, to, to get started and, and to make something and put it in front of an audience and probably a bit addictive I think the distribution side of it and learning about that and you know vessel rejections and all that kind of thing probably set us back a little bit for a while actually um, but certainly, you know, felt like this is definitely a road I want to go down. But it, yeah, it, like it for a doc at the time, an Irish doc, low budget, it, it made a big splash. And even, am I right in saying that it kind of stood to you when you were going to make Katie? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, Paul's done his research. That was funny. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of a funny story. I mean, the, uh, there was a few things to it. Like, it did. It was the first feature doc that had been made in Ireland for the cinema in a good four or five or six years. Like I think the previous one yeah. had been about um, Shane McGowan. I think there's going to be another Shane McGowan one actually. And you know, but right. there hadn't been that many feature docs in the cinema. And here we'd gone and made one for literally nothing. And it was the first feature doc commissioned under the new film board, um, and probably the first Irish feature doc to show in Galway for a few years. You know and. And like it made a little bit of noise at the time, but like it was, it was ignored by far, far more people than noticed it, I can tell you that. But yeah, as you say <laughs> later, what happened was um, after the 2010 Olympics, which would have been two years later, um, I was asked to do a little bit of filming with Katie Taylor, like a, a few one-minute pieces for her live shows, just to play on the big screen. She, she did a series of live shows after she won the Olympic gold. And I met Katie and uh, she said to me, she said, hi, how you doing, whatever. She goes, did you make that film Saviors? I said, yeah. And she goes, I love that film. I went to see that in the cinema twice. And I was just like amazed that anyone went to see it in the cinema twice, <laughs> let alone once. <laughs> but um, so I suppose in a way that was probably the start of a little bit of a, I suppose, acquaintance between Katie and I that later would lead to, to me making Katie, I suppose. But um, it wasn't like we became friends straight away or anything like that but it was it was nice to know that when we came back around to talking about the film that she had at least seen something I had made and, and around the time we were starting to film Katie she came to see um, Between Land and Sea which was the surfing doc I made and she liked that as well so like that, I suppose that gets you off on the right foot with people when they know your work or they like your work 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so kind of after Saviors, was it kind of hustling for years and try, for the next few years and kind of what were the next kind of bigger projects you were chasing then? Speaking to Liam the other day, um, who, Liam Nolan, who'd made Saviors with me, but we were just saying, I suppose we thought when we made a feature doc and particularly, you know, made a pretty decent one and for no money at all that it would lead to stuff, you know, that it would, it would really, really help our careers and, you know, the phone would ring and it really didn't, yeah. you know, and I think we were both, it's, we were, as I said, we were just talking about it a couple of days ago and, um, and I think we were both quite disillusioned with afterwards. Now, not, not to the point of wanting to give it up entirely, but just realizing, I suppose, that it takes more than just making something for people to notice you or, or to give you more opportunities. And, and I think certainly I felt a bit burnt out by that whole process. And then I kind of felt after that, look, I need to, I need to find something that will um, start to open doors. And uh, I've made a, a short documentary with my colleague Aideen O'Sullivan about phone boxes. And I won't go into the whole backstory of that, but we made this short for 15 grand at the time. We wanted to tell a big, wide story, so we didn't actually have any crew. We just went out, the two of us, with a camera, drove around Ireland trying to find stories about phone boxes and put them all together. And we made a short called Bye Bye Now, which ended up going to like almost 100 festivals and winning 20 awards and... Still, the phone didn't ring. <laughs> no, but uh, no, but it just was. It, it just kind of was a different experience, I suppose, and and it was really enjoyable. And the response to the film was really positive. And I suppose, as hopefully, as you build up, you know, a few films, you're building skills and experiences and all these things that enable you to keep doing it. And also, I suppose, you're hoping that people who give out funding realize that you can make films and you know you've made one or two the second one's good you know you make another one the third one's good or or certainly you know good enough that they're willing to to part with their money for other projects that you do or and i suppose a big thing i always think is just delivering at all you know like you're giving some money to go out and make a film most people deliver which is great but i'm sure there's a few people out there that just never come back with the film and and that's got to be a fear that people have is like that you're going to deliver that you're going to deliver to a certain level um, and the more work you do, then I suppose you're hopefully proving that, and, and it just makes easier, makes it easier for people to consider you as someone that funding should be given to. So, um, bye bye. Now was next. We did another short, and then I was doing a few TV uh, projects as well. I worked on Primetime for a while, did a doc with them, and then uh, in the background, I was kind of filming with a friend of mine, Mark Pollock, who was kind of a blind athlete. Um, he, when I first knew him, he was in college with me, he could see, and then he had lost his sight. And, you know, I was interested in, I'd always been interested from the very beginning of deciding to do docs, like, would there be a project I could do with Mark? And we filmed a few things together. And then ultimately he had this horrendous accident where he broke his back and uh, became... It's tragic, yeah. If anybody was following that at the time, I mean, it was all, it was all over the news. It, it, it was shocking. Yeah, I, I met him once and he was lovely. Really lovely. Yeah, he's the nicest guy. Like, yeah, look, I mean, it's the most incredible tragedy, and and I mean, he lived, which is amazing, but he's living now for the rest of his life, obviously paralyzed from the waist down. As much as he has been a forerunner in trying to find ways to navigate around that, or to, or to find ways of of making life easier for people in wheelchairs. Um, so I so I've been following him. So I ended up following him on and off for six years. 
And that eventually wow. became a documentary in 2014 called Unbreakable, um, which we kind of released around the place. But yeah, so the years just fly by. I remember trying to get a ticket and it was every screening that you had was sold out. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, I mean, I don't know, it might be interesting to people who listen to your podcast or not, I don't know, but what we did with that film was I distributed it myself. Uh, one of the reasons was I was quite, you know, I, was, I wasn't bitter or annoyed at anyone who had distributed Savers, but I just, because they did a great job, and but I just kind of felt like, well, maybe there's another way. And I often think, particularly with docs, if you know the subject really well and you are passionate about it, then, you know, that's something that you can kind of harness in distribution maybe in a way that a distributor can't, you know, and I suppose, um, yeah, with that film, we kind of came up with a, a way of trying to make it quite like, almost like a folk distribution, and between Mark and his fiance Simon and me, and we were pushing stuff out there, we ended up having like so many incredible screenings of the film that were sold out all over the country, and Q&A, we did loads of Q&As, loads of events, and it ended up being like, like not only successful financially, but also such an enjoyable experience to kind of do that yourself and to meet people yourself and for people to respond to your film in that way and for you to be there that I just don't think you get in the same way if someone else is distributing it. And it's not right for every film, but for that it seemed to work very well. well that's that's great and it's kind of inspiring for filmmakers as well to see that, that you can do it and, you know, and that it can be kind of financially rewarding. I think um, Lonely Battle of Thomas Reed a year or two ago, I think they did it themselves as well. Yeah, they did, and they did a great job. I chatted to them when they were when they were building up to it a fair bit, and um, or look, I mean, I just told them what I knew from doing it myself, um, and they did a great job themselves, and it just and it showed like they were getting tons of sold out screenings, like and also in venues you wouldn't expect, and you just think like, where are those people coming from? Like, where did the people come <laughs> to Unbreakable from? And we did it between land and sea, and we were like down in Kilkenny, and it's full, and you're like, how did you people even hear about this? You know. And there's just something in it, you know. I don't know what it is, and the fear, the fear, the dreams moment where it's like, what, what, where, how? Yeah, you know, they can't all be friends and family. Eventually, you run out of them, you know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it must be word of mouth. It is word of mouth, and and like I think it's certain subjects just catch people's attention. I think having a great trailer is huge. You know, that trailer moment is like the biggest moment I think in distribution for a small film particularly. Do you, do you cut them yourself or do you send off, there's a company in London that does them isn't there and do you do your own or? Yeah well we've I've done, uh, I, I wouldn't edit them no but like with the two that I self-distributed we had local editors here in Ireland and we just worked with them on kind of a spec and, and kind of did a few iterations of it until you felt like, I mean it's something that can't be rushed because I just think it's so important, do you know and I think it can't be an afterthought. It's almost as important as the film itself to get your trailer right. And if you do, then it, it will expand and it'll have so many views and people will get excited about it and then just backing that up with making sure people know where it's going to be on and, and, and trying to make people excited about the idea of going to see it. And sometimes, like, it's funny, you know, we had two screenings of Katie and Bray and we probably should have had a few more, but those two screenings and Bray, in some cases, took more than an entire week in a big cinema because they were packed, you know, and like, you know, four or 500, or, you know, I think it's 250 is the capacity there. So you have 500 people at two screenings, even in one evening sometimes for films. And 500 people across a week for a, for an independent film in a normal cinema is probably pretty good business. So sometimes events can work out better and, and it gives, it concentrates the mind for audiences, I think, that they go like, oh, this is happening on this evening 
in my local theatre and I can go there and it'll be a great night and I'll bring along a friend and there'll be a Q&A and, and it feels like a night out more than, yeah, more than like, oh, what's on tonight? Should we go and see something? You know, uh, it's a slightly different thing, I think. Mm. How did the uh, the, the uh, uh, Anthony Foley, Axel, uh, Monster Man, uh, come about? Yeah, that's another one, a bit like The Boys in Green, where a producer approached me, um, and, uh, Adrian McCarthy in Wildfire Films, um, approached me. I, I must ask him why. <laughs> I don't know why he didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, he's a really, I mean, Adrian would be one of the directors I really look up to, and um, and uh, as is Cormac from Loose Horse, and you're kind of going like, well, why don't you do it yourself? But I think that sometimes people just, whatever's on their plate or, or whatever the subject material is, they just feel like, well, maybe that person will, will come at it the right way and we'll be able to work together on it and, and, and that works. And I mean, that was a project where, like, the moment it was mentioned, you just think, like, this is a heavy, heavy kind of topic, but it's really, really interesting. And and again, you know, you're immediately struck by the opportunity in one way to tell a much bigger story um, well, it's not a bigger story. I mean, obviously, Anthony dying and, and the impact that it has on his family was nothing bigger than that. But you're able to put it in a context, I suppose, that gives people a way into the story, you know, and that whole story of what Anthony did in Munster and what he meant to Munster and what Munster meant to him kind of tells the story of, of a huge group of people. And, like, not just people from Munster. There was loads of Leinster people going around with red jerseys on as well. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it was just... There was a magical time when this underdog team was going around Europe uh, winning matches and tournaments and so on. And, and he was at the center of that. And you just think, well, that's, that's a really interesting story to tell. And, and, um, and also it's going to be very poignant and, and kind of necessary and, and hopefully is, ends up being a really fitting tribute to him, which is, I suppose, where the pressure is. You know, you want to make sure that you deliver on that. You find yourself kind of in a, you know... <laughs> You're like you're, you're like the Sam Beckett, the quantum the quantum leap uh, documentary director who finds himself caught up in the in the, in the midst of all these <laughs> <laughs> brilliant yeah, historical mi microcosm. I would don't mind. Happy enough. It's in a, you just don't need quantum leaps into the wrong place, I suppose. But you have a little <laughs> bit of control of that, don't you, as well? So, um, but it has ended up with, I suppose, the last few years. It's been a lot of sports docs, and mm -hmm. and they do kind of almost lead into each other. You know that. Maybe if I have an idea for a documentary at the moment, if it's got a sporting subject material, you know, if you go to the, the subject or you're trying to get access, then probably they've seen some of the work. So it's a done bit of a home run in that regard in terms you know? of getting the next project up. Have you any bro broader ambitions in terms of the future for something, um, maybe overseas or bigger internationally? Yeah, I suppose you just always want to do the biggest thing you can. There's no particular story that is international that I'm trying to tell at the moment. And in a way... If you position yourself as a director and you think, well, I'm, you know, I'm a director for hire as well, you know, that you're hoping that some of your work gets noticed. And, and one thing I'll say is that KG being on Netflix in the UK has just been really, really positive in that regard. And it, it's been a huge learning experience the last couple of years that, you know, if, if a film you make has the ability to be watched in other territories on a platform such as Netflix, then producers will watch it. And I've had a few really interesting calls about projects in the UK and so on and um, it's something I think any director at any point in their career might keep in mind is that like how is this short film how is this documentary how is this feature going to influence my career you know and how can how can I try and get it in front of the right people because 
you know, literally until Katie, there's, there's people that wouldn't have seen any of my work outside of Ireland. And then you think, you know, you might feel like you're good enough to do projects elsewhere or you're good enough to do projects that are considered big in other countries. Um, but if they don't know who you are, if they haven't seen your work, then there's no chance that you're going to be on the radar. So that's been a kind of a big learning experience in terms of Katie is keeping that in mind and thinking, you know, what avenues do you go down to try and expand that out a little bit that people have seen Katie and something else and that leads to another project and like, I happen to know from the guys who did the McGregor documentary that you know have had some really interesting off offers you know both you know producers director editor you know that that suddenly you're on the radar and people all over the world have seen it and and the the phone rings you know what I mean and they go like we're you know we're doing this documentary or that documentary it's, you know, it's a, Gav Fitzgerald told us a very same story. Um, well, I'm kind of telling Gav's story now, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sure no, he did. You you, you go. Uh, no, yeah, well, I mean, it's been brilliant for him, hasn't it? And I think, I think, and, and well deserved. It's, I, I mean, people, the ra response to the Conor McGregor docket, you know, was so mixed and at times very unfair. Like it was such a well-made film, um, in in its own approach, you know, to make a film like absolutely observation like that, basically no interviews. And for it to hang together the way it did, it's you know really really strong piece of work, and yeah, it's remarkable, that's yeah. been recognised. Um, just on that, um, documentary can be particularly heartbreaking when it comes to you have a great story, but for whatever reason, someone might pull out or the financing might fall apart. How how do you deal with the the lows? Um, yeah, I mean, thankfully. Haven't been too many, or else you know. I mean, it's a natural thing that you kind of forget them. Yeah. <laughs> the next good thing that happens, you forget the last bad thing that happened. But it, it's, I suppose, w one of the answers to that properly. I suppose is that you you get used to it. I suppose, and you you remain philosophical, and you understand that that's kind of the game that you're in. And suppose one thing is, I would probably be in a situation now where I wouldn't have all my eggs in one basket most of the time. You know, and you're kind of developing more than one project at a time and you're always trying like the big job I think with documentaries is preventing what exactly what you've just said from happening and it's keeping people happy and sometimes people who don't do docs or come to docs from a drama position you know if they've been producing drama and they say oh look this, I love all these docs that are out there I'd love to do a documentary don't realize how much of a daily job it is to keep subjects happy to keep characters to keep people involved happy to make sure that someone doesn't make a decision one day i don't want to do this documentary anymore that could negate a year of work that you've done or more so i i think that's the game you know i think that that's the the hardest part of it the bit that you're thinking about almost all the time and why it can be stressful at times because it can't ever leave your mind because you need to make sure that those real people that you're filming are happy uh have been communicated with like what well, it's happened a couple of times where you know i've had people that have been filming which suddenly go incredibly quiet and you finally get to the bottom of it and they're concerned about something for example they're concerned that you filmed something that they really don't want to be in the documentary and it turns out you didn't film it at all you know and <laughs> and you could you could lose a month to that you know what i mean and you so you kind of think that's one thing that i would do very clearly with people when i start a process with them is is sort of say look keep the communication uh, channels open that's the only way this is going to work if you're concerned about something we'll discuss it and a lot of the, I tell them that story <laughs> a lot of the time it's something I'm not even interested in that you're particularly concerned about so um I suppose that's the the, 
the battle that you're fighting all the time in a way is, is just keeping people happy for the duration of it and beyond you know i mean you don't want someone to leave come to the end of a film with a bad taste in their mouth either so um that's something i think you probably don't face in drama in the same way um that documentary makers have to spend a lot of time on although i suppose actors could walk and stuff i just replace them with another actor maybe i don't know but um yeah i think that's probably one of the hardest parts of the job right um just coming to the end now um we always tend to ask this question if there's any advice that you could give yourself starting out what would that be yeah, it's interesting. Well, it's it's definitely, I think, the advice would be, like, when I started out, I kind of had this idea that I'll make loads of stuff and I'll learn as I go along. And, you know, by making loads of things, eventually people will notice that you're doing things and, and you know, might pick up on that and, and introduce you to interesting projects and so on and so forth. And maybe in some small way that has kind of happened. But I actually don't think that's the way the film industry works. I think the way the film industry works is you'd be incredibly careful with everything you put out into the community, you know, and, and you really think about the films that you're making. And, and it sounds so strategic and almost a bit manipulative, like, but it's how it works. And a lot of, you only get one chance, I suppose, to be the next big thing or, or, or whatever. And I, I just think what you put out and how you put it out is, is so important. Um, I remember talking to Ken Wardrop about it, you know, and because um, he kind of had the exact opposite approach to me where he was incredibly conscious, uh, if I remember the conversation correctly, which hopefully I do, um, about the work that he put out and, and, and how polished he wanted it to be and, you know, the opportunity to make an impact that you only get that one chance to make the first impression. Um, and, uh, and it's definitely stood to him, I suppose, throughout his career. So I think that's the big thing. I... I be saying to people I think a lot of the time the quality of what you do and making sure that it's the absolute best it can be and that it gets put out there in the best way that it can be um can kind of make a much bigger impact than making five things um at a lower level so that's definitely the advice I give myself that's really great um thanks so much for for giving us your time and uh, we hope you get back to work uh like the rest of us as soon as possible <laughs> Thanks a million. Cheers, man. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.